Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we have another twofer today, since they are kind of quick stories, and I saw that you guys liked them last time, so I'm getting rid of all these itty-bitty stories that I haven't been able to fit in anywhere else. So thank you for that. I appreciate that so much. Anyways, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game, and as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say ossuary? That will be a single shot. And every time I say biblical, that's going to be a double shot. Do you have a funny feeling I'm going to be saying biblical a lot? (laughs) Anyways. All right. Now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So don your best ancient robes. Grab your rosary as we jump into all things biblical with today's offering of... The Strange Biblical Mystery of the James Ossuary, and The Mysterious Legendary Well of Souls. All right. Woo! Biblical stuff. Yeah, that's the theme tonight. Sorry. I don't know why I'm on a biblical kick lately. I'll change next week, I promise. All right. So we're going to start with the James Ossuary story first. All right. Let's jump in. All right. Some of the most mysterious and sought-after historical artifacts of all time 
hail from the biblical era of history. Things like the Holy Grail have become some of the most enigmatic items there are, highly sought after but ever evasive. But for all of the well-known objects like the Grail and the Ark of the Covenant that remain beyond our grasp, there are other lesser-known yet no less important artifacts that have apparently been found. One of these must certainly be a small, unassuming box which, if it's real, might pose the very first solid archaeological evidence for Jesus Christ being an actual real person. That's right. And yeah, I screwed up the word archaeological because I can't talk today. <laughs> All right. Laugh it up. That's funny. In 2002, an engineer and collector, an expert in Israeli antiquities by the name of Oded Golan, approached a professor, André Lemire, a Semitic epigrapher at the Sorbonne University in Paris, with a curious artifact that he wanted appraised. The object in question was a limestone box that had apparently come from a cave measuring 19.9 inches by 9.8 inches by 12 inches in, di in dimension, and which seemed to date back to the first century. The box appeared to be what is called an ossuary, which is a type of box once used as a depository for storing the bones of the dead, usually those of the wealthy elite. The corpse of the dead would be placed in a catacomb for approximately a year, after which the bones would be removed and interred within the box for their final resting place. Ossuaries were known to carry various engravings, designs, and inscriptions, and this box, well, it was no different. But one of the engravings stood out. There on the side of the box was an inscription in ancient Aramaic that said, Yaakov bar Yosef, Achi de Yushua, which in English means James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Lemire was taken aback by this because if it was genuine, it would possibly provide the first actual physical archaeological evidence for the existence of a real Jesus of Nazareth and could possibly be the ossuary of James the Just, who is the son of Joseph and Mary, making him the flesh brother of Jesus. And he was also the writer of the book of James. It was so groundbreaking in scope that Lemire would excitedly write of the discovery in the November-December 2002 Biblical Archaeology Review. In the meantime, the existence of the ossuary was announced by the Biblical Archaeology Society and immediately generated much discussion, debate, and controversy, becoming a worldwide phenomenon in the process. After all, if this was the real deal, it would mean that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person outside of textual references and affirmed the beliefs of millions of people around the world. The box itself was analyzed by several independent scholars of ancient Hebrew and archaeologists to find that the ossuary indeed did date back to the first century without question. 
This solved one part of the puzzle, in that it seemed to really be a genuine ancient artifact. The problem was, with the mysterious inscription mentioning Jesus Christ and what its significance was. For skeptics, the inscription was mostly real, except for the last part stating, Brother of Jesus, which was suspected as perhaps being a forgery. Much debate and conflicting research revolved around those few words in the inscription. According to André Lemire, the one who had first translated it, and one of the most well-respected Semitic epigraphers in the world, he believed that the inscription was authentic due to its unique cursive Aramaic script and the fact that it did not appear to have been inscribed with modern tools. The Israel Geological Survey did its own tests on the ossuary and determined that the inscription had a uniform patina or sheen that was consistent with being from the first century and which was the same across the entirety of the inscription, making it unlikely that it could have been made in modern times. However, Skeptics were quick to point out that the part of the inscription that says Brother of Jesus was seemingly significantly shallower than the rest, suggesting it had been added later, and this was bolstered by the fact that, although ossuaries often mentioned the father of the deceased, they almost never mentioned the brother. To these skeptics, the answer to the mystery was simple. Someone had added that part in more contemporary times, possibly Golan himself. This was made even more plausible considering the fact that Golan had been found to have dealt with forged artifacts in the past and had indeed been convicted of it before. The Israeli Antiquities Authority, the IAA, agreed and in 2003 came to the conclusion that the inscription was a fake, at least the part mentioning Jesus of Nazareth, and that it had been fraudulently made to look older through the use of a chalk solution. Golan would be charged with forgery, fraud, and deception, despite anyone being unable to offer definitive proof that the James ossuary was a fake. Golan was put on trial, and the controversy would fire up even more, with various experts called in by the persecution and the defense that would often come to contradictory conclusions, and talk of a conspiracy being carried out began to surround the proceedings. Because, of course, it's got to be fake. Or it's got to be real. One of the two. There's no, there's no gray area in this. There was plenty of support for the claim that the inscription was authentic. For instance, two paleographers, André Lemire of the Sorbonne and Ada Yardini of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, both stated that they believed it to be genuine, and several experts on inscriptions expressed doubt that there was any way for Golan to have convincingly forged the inscription and made it appear to be so old without access to very advanced equipment and expertise. Wolfgang Elizabeth Krumbian, a world-renowned expert in stone patinas, would say of this, and I quote, any forgery of three very distinct types of patina, if ever possible, requires the development of ultra-advanced techniques, in-depth knowledge, and extensive collaboration of a large number of experts from various fields. End quote. I'm just going to say for my two cents, and again, it's only my two cents, is this guy clearly got stuck got caught faking stuff before, so clearly he's not very smart about it. 
I find it hard to believe that he'd be smart enough to fake this. I just, I, I just don't feel it. Yeah, okay, he, he faked stuff before, but that doesn't mean necessarily that everything is fake. I'm just saying. I have an open mind. Even so, other archaeological experts were skeptical, and this atmosphere of conflicting experts and contradictory findings made the whole trial complicated indeed. No one could seem to agree on whether it was real or not, and this was all constantly overshadowed by the refusal of the Israeli Antiquities Authority to budge on the matter, continuously stating that it was a forgery and sparking rumors of a cover-up. After all, if genuine, the James Ossuary would challenge the established Catholic dogma of Maria as sempre virgine, or the ever-virgin, with the Vatican refusing to accept that Jesus ever had any brothers or siblings at all, which has provided certain ideological and political reasons to those behind the scenes who might want to suppress the idea that the Ossuary could be real. This is seen as reflected in the fact that it seems that the government had very little in the way of evidence to prove their case. In the end, the prosecution was able to prove their accusations beyond a reasonable doubt. Golan was acquitted on charges of forgery for the ossuary, and though he was still convicted of other cases of dealing in the illegal trade, trading of antiquities, the ossuary was returned to him, and he was let go for that particular artifact, with barely a slap on the wrist. And that's pretty much the end of it, for the most part. There has been very little follow-up on the James ossuary, and it has undergone little further analysis. It is perhaps potentially one of the most amazing biblical archaeological finds there is, possibly true evidence of an actual Jesus, yet it has just sort of floated off to be buried and no discussion about it at all. The few who do look into it can still not agree whether it's genuine or not, and so it's still unknown just how authentic it really is, whether it's a hoax or not, whether it was covered up, or what exactly it all means. And the James Ossuary has become a rather odd little historical mystery for which we may never have concrete answers. Big surprise that we never have answers, right? We never do. All right. That brings us to our second story and the mysterious, legendary well of souls. All right, take two. Located on the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem in Israel, lies one of the oldest pieces of known Islamic architecture, a shrine known commonly as the Dome of the Rock. Completed in 691-692 AD, it has had a long history, and although it has been destroyed and rebuilt several times over the centuries, it remains an important and unique piece of architecture. And I'm going to put my two cents in there. It's beautiful. Just not even religious, not even spiritual. It's just beautiful. Anyways, with its octagonal layout, piers, grand columns, and walls covered with marble, mosaics, and inscriptions. It is an immediately recognizable landmark, one of the most famous in Jerusalem. But as interesting as the Dome of the Rock is, even more interesting and steeped in mystery is what it is built upon. Here is a place worshipped for centuries and home of deep mysteries that will perhaps never or should never be understood. 
In the center of the dome is a large rock called the Foundation Stone, which has incredible importance in the Abrahamic religions. It is said that God created the world in Adam, the first human being from here, and that it serves as a spiritual junction or portal between heaven and earth, called the Axis Mundi, and also the Holy of Holies. Because of this, in Judaism, it is believed that the power of God on earth is strongest at this point, where he manifests the most. And it is for this reason that the Jewish face this direction when praying the Amidah, which is the central prayer of the Jewish liturgy. The foundation stone is also an important location for Muslims as it is believed that it is from here where the prophet Muhammad began his fabled night journey aboard a winged mule-like white beast called Barak, to ascend to heaven to what is called the farthest mosque. The 11th century Persian writer and traveler Nasiri Kushra would write of this, and I quote, They say that on the night of his ascension into heaven, the prophet peace and blessings be upon him, prayed first at the Dome of the Rock, laying his hand upon the rock. As he went out the rock, to do him honor, rose up, but he laid his hand on it to keep it in its place and firmly fixed it there. But by reason of this rising up, it is even to this present day partly detached from the ground beneath. End quote. The foundation stone was also important for the Knights Templar, who had their headquarters there for much of the 12th century and identified the Dome of the Rock as the site of the Temple of Solomon. The foundation rock is considered to be among the most important and revered religious spots in both Judaism and Islam. But while the rock and temple themselves are still embroiled in mysteries and differences of opinion as to their true significance and histories, even more enigmatic still is what lies below the site. Down in the earth, beneath the foundation stone, past a hole in the upper portion, is a subterranean cave known as the Well of Souls also sometimes variously called the Pit of Souls, Cave of Spirits, or Well of Spirits. The cave is accessed by 15 steps that descend into the gloom to a passageway adorned with prayer niches devoted to the biblical figures David and Solomon, which leads to the main chamber. This chamber has two shrines on either end for the biblical figures Abraham and Elijah, and there is a shaft that leads up to the hole of the foundation stone above, its purpose shrouded in mystery. The stairs and passageway to the Well of Souls are believed to have been created by the Crusaders who recaptured Jerusalem in 1099 and turned the Dome of the Rock into a church. And the cave itself may seem interesting but ultimately nondescript, yet it is absolutely pervaded with myth, legend, and mystery. This mostly lies not with the cave itself, but what supposedly lies under it in another cave system below, which is said to be the true Well of Souls. The legend from which it gets its name comes from the medieval Islamic legend that it was here where the souls of the dead would come to languish as they awaited their fate during Judgment Day. And it was long said that sometimes the screaming and wailing of these souls could be heard emanating from it. 
Muslim traditions also claim that this cave is the literal center of the universe, and that under it is a bottomless pit through which flows the river of paradise. In Jewish traditions, the Talmud states that below the cave is a great abyss that still roils with the waters of the biblical flood, and indeed it is said that Noah landed here when the great flood subsided. In later centuries, the cave would gain prominence within Christianity as well, with the coming of the Crusaders, who were responsible for creating the entrance and passageway through the rock, and who called it the Templum Domini, or Temple of the Lord. To them, this cave was also a holy place, and the site of the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. In addition to these myriad myths and traditions, one of the main mysteries of this significant cave is that there is indeed evidence of a larger chamber lying beneath the cave, although there is no known entrance to it, and it is a mystery what lies down there as no excavation has ever been attempted for fear of damaging this very holy site. Theories on what could be in this hidden chamber include that it holds a literal bottomless abyss, that it is really where the souls go to wait to await judgment, that it is the chamber where Abraham prepared his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God, and even that it is the final resting place of the lost Ark of the Covenant the sacred vessel that supposedly contains the original Ten Commandments that God gave Moses upon Mount Sinai. Some say that a great treasure lies down there, a lost city, or some fantastic biblical artifact, but it is unknown. No one really knows what's down there, and there is also the theory that there is nothing there at all. We will probably never know, as considering the cave's religious importance and the diplomatic and theological sensitive issue of exploring it, there is very little chance that anyone would dare go in and tear up the floor. The Well of Souls could hold wondrous and fantastical historical artifacts and marvels, the power of God, or nothing at all. And the question of what it contains is a question we will likely never get an answer to. Its mysteries buried in the gloom as they always have and perhaps always will. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on today's topic and what you think. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.